at 6.05, I told Bill if we didn't do a call to worship, I wasn't going to have any time to preach, and um, he remedied that by, remedied that by uh, taking care of my first two points in my sermon, what a philanthropist was and what a philanderer was, so <laughs> I only have one point left tonight. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Bill's right. It's totally different up here at times, and it's very easy to uh, to say something and go, did I just say that? Um, so and I typically do that every night. I think the last time I preached, I confused Moses and Noah the entire night, and I'm sure you left home in great confusion and spent a lot of time with your children trying to discern the difference between those two. We're going back into the book of Colossians tonight. It's been a while, and uh, I trust that hopefully you remember uh, the book and what's been going on. Bill, uh, I guess two weeks ago, uh, preached in Colossians 3. You'll remember that the book of Colossians is a uh, book that was written to a, a church very similar to ours, a small, a young church uh, that is pretty, pretty young in their faith and, and young as a body. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to them. And he begins in chapter 1 with dealing with doctrine, the supremacy of Christ. And he explains that and he, he lifts high uh, the glory of our God and, and the supremacy of our God. And he moves on from that to an appeal to defend and to prepare yourself to stand firm against false doctrines in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he turns to a more practical teaching. And, and we see this commonly in Paul because we learn just from, from that um, that habit of his from going from doctrine into practice, we learn from that, that that right practice always derives itself out of right doctrine. Okay, Doctrine doesn't always lead to right practice because you can have bad doctrine. But right biblical doctrine always leads to right biblical practice. And that's where we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3. So uh, he begins by exhorting the people to live Christ-like lives in the first four verses of chapter 3. Um, and then what Bill uh, preached on a few weeks ago in, in verses 5 through 11, he, he, he talks about the negative. He says to put off or put to death the worldliness and the deeds of the flesh. And, and Bill, Bill preached on that, and we saw God's word on that. So tonight, we turn to the positive exhortation of Paul, the, the put on godliness part of the chapter. Uh, we have a tendency, I believe, as Christians to really focus on the don'ts. We, we have a tendency to, to believe that as long as, as long as I'm avoiding sin, as long as I'm taking care of the don'ts, what I should not do, then I'm okay. And, and this, is, this is half true. There are certainly things that we should not do as Christians. There are things that we should avoid as believers. But that is not the full truth. That is not all that Christianity is made up of. In, in each commandment, in each instruction not to do something in the Word, we learn a positive truth about who Christ is. We learn a positive truth about what he's called us to do and what he expects of us. And so tonight we're going to look at what are we called to do? What is the Christian life about? What am I to proactively be doing as a believer in Christ? If I'm going to follow Jesus, what am I to put on? What am I to do as a believer? And so the question is, am I living as Christ has called me to live? Am I living in the way that Christ has called me to live? Or are you living in the way that Christ has called you to live? Not only are you avoiding the things that Scripture says, don't do these things, but are you living in the way that he has called you to live? Okay? So that's the question tonight. And we're going to jump into verses 12 through 17 of Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes this, So as those who have been chosen of God 
holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Paul, Paul begins with, with reminding the Colossians of their identity. He starts by saying, this is who you are. And you understand that identity is, is, is critical to us. We, we, we live in a, within our identity, right? What is, what is the most common question that you ask someone when you get to know them? What do you do? Hi, I'm Todd. You're Bill. Good. What do you do, Bill? And so Bill says what? I'm a pastor. And his identity, he's, he's expressing his identity. I'm a pastor. That's who I am. And so identity is, is very critical to how we understand ourselves and our task and what we do. We went to camp a few years ago, and, the, and the, you know, some things just stand out, and, and God teaches you various things in your life. And this is one of the things that he taught me from a youth camp. He, he, the, the pastor said this. I don't even remember who was preaching, uh, to be honest with you. But the camp pastor said this. He said, he spent a sermon, and he said, before I am anything, I'm a Christian. My identity is so wrapped up in Christ that before I'm a camp pastor, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a dad, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a mom, I'm a Christian. Before I'm an athlete, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a student, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a businessman, I'm a Christian. My identity is that I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. Because out of that identity, it determines how we live and the, the purpose and our goals. It's what Bill talked about this morning at the end of his sermon when he, when he encouraged our students. He said, listen, you're, you're starting school this week. How are you approaching school? If you approach it with your identity as just a student, then you approach it to make good grades. But if you approach it finding your identity in Christ, then you approach it to bring him glory and honor through making good grades, through playing sports, through take, taking leadership, whatever it may be. And so our identity is in Christ first and foremost. Listen, there's three, there's three statements that he makes about who we are. The first one is this. He says that though, he calls us those who have been chosen of God. Those who have been chosen of God. This word chosen is a critical word in Scripture. It's one that, that some people run from, but it's one that if we hide from and we avoid, we lose a valuable, valuable understanding of who God is and what he has done in our lives in saving his people. It's used over 245 times in the Old Testament. In the Greek Septuagint, this word in the Greek is used over 245 times. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 245 times. All referring to God's people as being chosen. In the New Testament, it's used over 15 times referring to God's people being chosen. God has chosen people. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to this description of who we are. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, 
but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, why, why do we read all that passage when we talk about our identity? Peter says, well, he says, he says you're a chosen race. It's the same thing that Paul says here. It's the same thing that, that we see throughout Scripture, that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You had, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why? Why does he remind of the identity? What, what, is it, what comes out of that identity is that they would abstain from world, worldliness and they would keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? That they would praise God in heaven. That they would praise God in heaven. Who we are drives what we do. Who we are drives what we do. Our, our lives, that our motivation for living Christ-like is not derived from what we want to obtain. It's not derived from wanting to obtain salvation. It's derived from our identity as God's chosen people. We must not lose sight of who we are. And Paul constantly brings the people back to this. He constantly brings the church back to this. Who are you? Who are you? You're God's chosen people, holy and beloved. Who are you? Remember who you are. He constantly brings them back. We must remember who we are. The second thing, the second two actually holy and beloved, they're actually descriptions of God's chosen people. The first one, he says that we are holy. You understand that holy is used in two ways in Scripture, okay? There, there's two understandings of, of holiness in Scripture. The first understanding is of moral purity, and that's what we instantly think of right away. And we hear holiness, or we, say, we hear be holy. We hear be morally pure. That's what we think of. That's our first thought is moral purity. But, but we, we read in Scripture of holy water and holy bread, right? A, a loaf of bread cannot be morally pure. You understand that. So what is holy bread? That's the second understanding. The second understanding is that something that is set apart is described as holy. So, so there's two understandings, moral purity and being set apart of holiness in Scripture. So the first thing is this. When he says that, that you are chosen, those having been chosen of God, holy and beloved, He's referring to a definitive status that God has set us apart for himself. You understand that you are a chosen people. You've been set apart for God. You've been set apart for God. Listen, Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. That we would be holy. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. It's a calling. Again, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.16, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. It's a calling. We see that God has set us apart for himself as holy, but we understand it's also a calling. Just like the one who called you, be holy. Just like the one he called you, set yourselves apart in your behavior. Distinguish yourselves in all your behavior. Make it clear who you follow. Listen, being chosen and set apart brings with it ethical responsibility. We're not chosen and set apart just for our own sake and to get to heaven. 
There's more to it than that. There's more depth to it. Our standing as a saint should drive us to live a life worthy of the calling that God has placed on us. When, when we read this, when we look in here and it says that, that we are chosen, we're holy, we're set apart, when we see that, it should drive us to live a life that brings glory and honor to God. It should force me to look at my life and the way that I father my children, the way that I parent my children, and do that in a way that's glorifying to God. It should drive me to look at the way I pastor our students and adults here and, and look at the, that and say, listen, I should do that in a way that brings glory and honor to God. It should drive me to bring glory and honor to God in the way I entertain myself through movies and music. It should drive me to bring glory and honor to God in the way that I carry out relationships with friends. It should drive me to live a life set apart for God. The third thing he says this, he says that we are beloved. Or some translations say dearly loved. We are beloved. You have been tenderly cared for by God Almighty. You have been tenderly cared for by God Almighty. Beloved, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A demonstration of his love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jude 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father. We, we had a sermon on this, what, four weeks ago. Beloved by God the Father. Tenderly loved and cared for. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13 refers to believers as those beloved by the Lord, chosen from the beginning for salvation. Beloved by the Lord, God has set His love and care on you. Listen, this is, a, this, is, this is a truth that I think we have lost in America. And, and it's interesting. Here, here's the deal. Is, is across America, what character trait of God is most commonly preached and talked about? God is love. That, that's the most common character trait. But I think that that character trait has been robbed of the weight and the truth of what it really means. How could that be that it's always preached but we lose the value and meaning of it? It's because when you don't see God's love in light of God's holiness and justice and wrath, then the depth of his love, the richness of his grace and mercy loses weight. You are beloved by God. You are tenderly cared for by God he has set his love upon you God Almighty the holy God that created everything that opened his mouth and stars shot out of the speed of light the God that commanded the storm to be still and it obeyed the God who split the Red Sea the God whose anger burns at sin who's completely holy and fully just, has set his love upon you as a believer. 
we can't miss the depth of that truth. We may hear about God's love all the time. We may read it. We may see bumper stickers. But we can't miss the weight of that truth. We can't miss it. What's, do you know what's wrong with this mic? It's too close. All right. I'm just take it off. Man. Is that better? All right. It's catching some beard hair, evidently. All right. This is a good stopping point. Is I think here, Here's the thing with this. I think the danger for us as God's people is that we can become very conceited. We can become very prideful at this point. And, and that's been a, a danger that's, that, that believers in the past at times have stumbled on. That, that being chosen and set apart and beloved makes me special and we become very prideful and we kind of start resting on our laurels. But this idea of chosen is not the idea of going out to Somerset on Tuesday morning with Clint Winstead to play Ultimate Frisbee and picking teams and getting chosen to be on the team because you're a good Ultimate Frisbee player. It's not the idea of a pickup baseball game and them saying, okay, I'm going to choose you, you, and you, and you, and then you've got me standing there waiting because I'm terrible at baseball. That's not the picture at all. See, the picture is that we're all on the same playing field. That we can't lose sight of who we are. And we think about this fact that of who we are, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's own possession, a holy nation, holy, set apart, beloved by God. And we see that. that, that that's an amazing thing. But we must not fail to see that in light of who we truly are. We're sinners. And so it's the picture of us all standing on the ball field not even being able to pick up a ball because we're dead. And God choosing us, bringing new life within us. That's the picture. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. It says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you are more in number than any other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But he chose you because the Lord loved you. He didn't choose you or me because of anything we did. He, choose us, he chose us because of his love and mercy. The, these three descriptions of God's people, chosen, beloved, holy, are all used throughout the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. They're all descriptors of Israel. And so it's, it's significant that Paul now looks to the Colossians, a bunch of Gentiles, and says, you too are chosen, holy, and beloved. The gospel is God's power to save, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. We shall not be ashamed of that. We shall not be ashamed of it. Paul moves on in the second part of verse 12. And he calls us to put on godliness. Put on godliness. This, this phrase, put on, is a clothing metaphor. It's a clothing metaphor. You would just, just like you would clothe yourself. He says to clothe yourself, to put on godliness. The, the, it's interesting that the form that Paul uses here, it's a command, it's an imperative. It's a command that signifies a decisive initial act. It's a settled 
attitude. Put on. Do it. Put on godliness. And he says to clothe ourselves in, in, in five character qualities right away. He says compassion. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now I want you to notice this right away. That each of these qualities are relational. Each one of these qualities are relational. You cannot practice compassion by yourself. <laughs> you're just not. You're not going to be kind to someone if you're sitting by yourself, if you're not in a relationship with someone. Humility, gentleness, patience, all these are relational. They deal with interpersonal relationships. You see, we were saved as individuals, right? You understand that? Our salvation is not dependent on other people around you. Right? My, my salvation did not depend on my parents. It did not depend on anyone in this room. My salvation is, a, is, is dependent on Christ's work in my life. So I'm saved as an individual, but what am I saved into? An individual faith? No. I'm saved into what? A community. I'm saved into a family. I'm saved into a body. I'm saved to be in a community with someone. And that someone is God's people. The family of God. We're adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. To all those who believed, he did what? He gave the right to become children of God. Ephesians 1, Galatians 4, talk about his adoption of us as sons. We are saved individually into a community. It means more than a casual hello. I, I think, this is, listen, this is one of those things, that, it's one of those things that, that is so easy and we miss it. It's so easy, and we just flat out miss it. He says, be compassionate. Be kind. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. It, that means that we really know one another. It's a deep and rich fellowship one, with one another. It's a fellowship that's deep enough and intimate enough to show compassion when someone's hurting. I mean, to really care when you say, hey, Paul, how are you doing? It's more than just a greeting, more than just a passing glance. It's a compassion that when you see someone grieving in worship, you're moved to grieve and you don't know why because you have compassion on that person. It's kindness to someone who's wronged you. I, I guarantee you, someone, I've probably wronged someone in this room. Someone's probably wronged me and it's still kindness it's being kind to them showing love to them it's humility to serve those around you to not be focused always on stepping up and, and elevating myself and putting myself at a higher place a higher priority in the body but it's humbleness it's gentleness to the one who needs correcting listen I, I one of you came into my office this week and in the most gentle loving way that I, perhaps it's ever been done, sat across from my desk and said, listen, I want to make sure that you are spending time with your wife. It's gentleness. It's kindness. It's compassion to look to God's people and to show love. To correct if they need correcting, not, not by browbeating them, but gently instructing them in the truth and the grace and the word. 
is patience with the ones who seem to never learn from their mistakes. We are dumb people at times. There's no nicer way to put it. We just are. There's times where I look at myself and I think, Why, what was I thinking? I'm, a, I'm a, an adult. I'm supposed to be a mature believer. I know better. Obviously, I didn't act upon it. And it's patience that you show patience with me. I show patience, patience with you when we seem to make the same mistakes over and over again. It means that the church is the church involved in one another's lives. It simply means the church is being the church. Paul calls us to be in relationship with one another. What's the result? Verse 13, what is the result of clothing ourselves in these things? Paul says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. If we clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, we will bear with one another. Now, what is the tone that that says when you hear that, bearing with one another? It ain't easy, right? When, when I think of bearing with one another, that's not something I go, hey, I want to go bear, bear along with you. It's not something I, I necessarily look forward to, right? but that we would bear with one another in our imperfections. We would bear with one another in our sinful tendencies. What, what do we typically do, though, when someone's difficult or has a hard time showing these character qualities? They're struggling. They're immature in the faith or they're making poor decisions. What do we want to do? Our, our tendency is, well, we're going to move on to somebody else. God bless their heart. <laughs> Hope it works out for them. You know, and we do it in a very gentle and nonchalant way. Oh, we just kind of forget things and we move on over. The scripture says bear with one another in our sinfulness and imperfections. Bear with one another. The second thing, what does he say? He says forgive one another. Forgive one another. Paul basically assumes that you're going to have to forgive someone. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. It's just going to have to happen. You know why? Because there's things that you're going to do or that I'm going to do that's going to need forgiving. Because we are sinful. You understand this is more than just a Sunday school answer. If I look out and say, hey, hey, are you a sinner? We would all go, yeah. Check one off. I answered rightly. It's more than a Sunday school answer. It's a, it's, a, it's a truth that we have to know as we interact and as we live alongside one another in the body. That as I, as I work alongside Sue Pointer, she realizes Todd's a sinner. He's a sinner. And I realize, you know what? Sue's a sinner. And there's times where I probably say something not so great to Sue. I don't know. I think we're all right. <laughs> I'm glad she shook her head. That would really mess up the sermon, wouldn't it? But we understand that we're sinners. It, it, that every time someone disappoints you, that I look at them and, and I say, they're a sinner, just like me. And I'm going to show grace and I'm going to show forgiveness and I'm going to show love and patience and compassion and kindness and gentleness to that individual just as God has shown me. Who is the supreme motivator and example of our forgiveness? Christ is. Forgive as your dad forgave you that time? No. Forgive as Christ forgave you. 
I, I don't know what your relationship is with people in the body of grace. I hope it's great. I think God has blessed us with tremendous unity. But the reality is that, that we're sinners and there's times that we can allow bitterness to build up and there's times where we can allow our own sin to stand in the way of unity. And if that's the case in your life, then you need to go get that right tonight. If that means calling someone and saying, hey, I need to swing by your house tonight after church, then that needs to be done. Because we're called to bear with one another and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Don't act surprised when you're sinned against. Expect it. Show patience and love. Bear with one another. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Verse 14. Paul says, Beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's the crowning grace of godly clothing. It reminds us of 1 Corinthians 13. That's nestled right in between 1 Corinthians 12, the teaching on the body, all the gifts, and 14. It's nestled right in this teaching on what the church is, on how God has blessed us in different ways. And he says, listen, as God's blessed you in different ways and you're good at different things and some of you can do things that others can't, and there's, uh, there's a lot of variety in the body, then you need to love one another. And here's what love looks like. Here's what love looks like. And he goes on in a beautiful chapter, a beautiful description of love and describes it. And he says here that love is the unifying factor of God's people. It's the unifying factor for God's people. It brings us together. It's the perfect bond of unity. Grace Baptists, we have to show love to one another. We have to. John 13, 35 says that unless we show, if we do not show love to one another, it will be a testimony against who we serve. Why? Because Jesus said in that verse, he said, they will know your mind by your love for one another. If we're going to demonstrate that we follow Christ, then we have to love one another. 1 John 4.19, we love because what? Because he first loved us. We must be a loving body of believers. We're going to do the rest of this really quick. Paul closes now in... With, with three exhortations to the people. Three exhortations. The first one in verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. There's two understandings of the peace of God in Scripture, right? There's peace with God that's brought by our justification by faith. Romans 5.1 says that now that you've been justified by faith, you, are, you have peace with God. And then you also have the peace of God. Philippians 4, 7 says uh, that be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the peace with God that brings the peace of God. If you do not have peace with God through justification by faith, if you have not been redeemed and saved, you do not have peace of God. You just don't. There's no way. Peace with God brings the peace of God. 
And so we have these dual understandings of peace. Peace is found in the presence of Christ. Listen, John 14, 27, Jesus comforts his disciples by saying this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, my peace I give to you. And Paul says, let this rule your life. Let peace rule your life. It's the imagery of an umpire. Let the peace of God rule. Let it umpire the conflicts of your life. When there's conflicts, when there's disputes, when they arise, let the peace of God dwell and rule. Kent Hughes says this, how much misery we would avoid if we permitted the peace of Christ to umpire our, umpire our hearts. How many words we would hold back if he were the arbitrator in our lives. How many sleepless nights we would forgo if we did this. Let the peace of God rule your hearts. That's the first exhortation. The second one is this. He says, let the word dwell richly within you. Verse 16. Let the word dwell richly within you. Why? Why? It's because John seventeen seventeen tells us that the word sanctifies you. It makes you more like Christ. We know from Psalms 119, 11, that it's the word that teaches us and guards us from sin. The word is living and active. We know that the word is powerful. It's powerful. It's the word of God. Paul calls for the word to dwell or live within us. It's more than just a mental knowledge. It's more than just a casual reading of Scripture to check off a list on a yearly reading plan. It's study and meditation on the word. Listen to this. Listen to this, this quote. This is from a, a guy named George Swinnock. He says this. He says, The word of God is a spring of living water, a deep mine of costly treasure a table with all sorts of food and a garden with a variety of pleasant fruits. It contains the church's charter with all her privileges. It has precepts for the Christian's reformation and precious promises for her consolation. If the saint is afflicted, it can hold his head above water and keep him from sinking when the billows go over his soul. There are cordials rich enough to revive the most faint, the most fainting spirit. If the saint is assaulted, the word is his armor. If the soul is unholy, the word can sanctify it. This water can wash out all the spots and stains. If the soul is an heir of hell, this word can save it. This word is deposited as a special treasure into the hands of the children of men that they might obey God's will and know the just one. It is our duty to search and study this book. What a beautiful description of what the word is. And Paul says, let it dwell richly within you. This can be understand, understood here. This it can be translated a couple different ways as within you or among you. It can have a, a, kind of a personal way or a communal way of understanding it. And Paul likely had both in mind as he was writing it. That the, the word of God would dwell within you as a believer, richly within you. That within my life, the word of God would dwell richly but it would also dwell richly among us as a body. And how do we see that? How do we see it manifest? Through wise teaching. Through wise teaching. When the word dwells in and among us, we'll be known for our Christ-centered, word-driven preaching and teaching. And the second way, through the word-centered worship and songs. 
Our, our songs will be filled with scripture and biblically based. Note that it includes both hymns and spiritual songs. Matt preached on worship last week. We don't have to spend a lot of time here. It's not about style. It's about content. What is the content of the songs we sing? He, he concludes that exhortation being thankful. And he wraps up in verse 17. He says, do all in the name of Christ. Do all in the name of Christ. Do everything. Everything. It's the chief end of man. That we would bring glory and honor to Christ. That he would be praised and exalted as a result of our lives. Matthew 5, 16. Let our light shine before men. Why? That they would see your good deeds and exalt you. No. See your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do all for the glory of Christ. Do all in the name of Christ. It's comprehensive. Everything that we say, everything we do. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. To your name be the glory. There's one final thing that we skipped over that we need to see. What does Paul conclude every one of these exhortations with? There's a common thread that goes through all three of those exhortations. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Giving thanks. It's been said that the surest sign that you're carrying a full bucket is wet feet. Have you ever carried a full five-gallon bucket? Your feet are going to be wet. If the peace of Christ rules our hearts, if the word of God dwells richly within us, and if we are living our life to the glory and praise of Christ, then our wet feet is a heart of thankfulness we will sing forth in thanksgiving. Because we know that while we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated his love. We know that we are chosen and holy, we're set apart and beloved by God. And we're thankful for what God's done in our life. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, God, and we thank you for this exhortation from Paul. And we thank you that all throughout Scripture, God, you led men and women to bring you glory and honor as a demonstration of how we are to live and pursue you. God, we thank you that throughout Scripture, you led men to remind us of our identity. We thank you for the words of Peter and the words of Paul that remind us that we are a chosen race. We are beloved by you. And we have been set apart as holy. Not because of our righteousness, but because the one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we would become your righteousness. So God, we stand before you tonight in thanksgiving and praise. And God, we stand before you tonight humbly acknowledging that we are sinful. 
And God, as we live in community with one another, as we live as a family of believers, God, we pray that you would put kindness and compassion and humility and patience upon our hearts and our minds. God, give us the humility and love to bear with one another and to forgive one another as appropriate as opportunity arises that you guard our unity and allow us to be a family that loves one another and declares your greatness and your truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.